The Ruth Page School of Dance is a platform for developing great artists and connecting them with both audiences and community. Find audition information for the school's International Dance Experience, a four-week summer intensive featuring teaching artists from all over the world, at ruthpage.org. friends and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media and before we begin today's episode we want to acknowledge that we're recording one day after eight people, six of whom were Asian, were killed in a series of shootings at Atlanta area massage parlors. This is It's a horrifying tragedy, and it comes at this time when hate incidents targeting Asian Americans have risen dramatically. On the surface, this isn't a dance story, but anti-Asian bias and discrimination and misrepresentation is very much a dance world problem. And the shootings in Atlanta underscore the urgency of issues like eliminating Orientalist stereotypes in ballet, for example, because that kind of dehumanization, when you reduce cultures to caricatures, that's a pathway to hate. So if you have the means to give, please do consider including dance-specific Asian advocacy causes like Final Bow for Yellowface when you're giving. Um, We'll include a link to the Final Bow page in the episode notes. So back to today's episode, we're going to be talking about the health insurance crisis that many dancers and especially freelance performers are facing right now. We'll discuss how the pandemic's devastation of the arts has disproportionately affected women, and particularly women of color. We'll get into the dance highlights of Sunday night's Grammy Awards. And then we'll air our interview with Emily Coates, who is the director of the Dance Studies Concentration at Yale. And Emily talked about how the pandemic has shown the whole world the value of embodied connection, which is something that dancers are so expert in. And then she also weighed in on how Dance Academia has handled this COVID year. Emily is actually the second in our series of interviews with dance world leaders reflecting on the COVID-versary, which we just passed. And we'll have two more of those interviews airing in our next two episodes. So stay tuned there. Of course, if you follow us on social media at dance underscore edit on Twitter and at the dot dance dot edit on Instagram, you'll get some reminders before those episodes drop. Okay, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. And Courtney, you're up first. All right, so Works in Process has announced that live in-person performances at the Guggenheim will resume this Friday, March 19th. Uh, So over the next month, they'll be producing surprise daytime performances as part of the New York Pops Up initiative. But that's not all. Additionally, the spring season of Works in Process kicks off this Saturday, March 20th, with Caleb Teicher and Conrad Tao, the first of a dozen one-night-only performances from the artists who developed new commissions during bubble residencies. These will take place in the Guggenheim's Rotunda for reduced capacity audiences. And I have to say, I actually got the release on this like two hours before we started recording. Like, this is literally breaking news. It, it It's starting tomorrow. The day that you're hearing this, it's starting tomorrow. It, like, almost unbelievable. Happy, happy, unbelievable, but unbelievable. Like, in-person performances in New York City inside from a major presenter? Is this real life? 
And this, the annual festival at Jacob's Pillow will return this summer after being canceled last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, last year's cancellation marked the first in its history. And later in November of 2020, the Pillow's beloved Doris Duke Theater burned down. Uh, but this summer, they're coming back with an outdoor festival from June 30th to August 29th. And the lineup will be announced in April. Um, according to director Pamela Taji, the summer programming will be, quote, a combination of commissioned works and existing works by companies that people know well and have histories with the pillow in addition to a significant number of jacob's pillow debuts and plans to rebuild the duke will be announced in the fall so some some pretty exciting performance news with these top two head items i mean i'm gonna be carrying that on with this next one because uh i think you all recall that last year bates and adf and jacob's pillow all canceled on the same day if i'm remembering correctly and we just heard that bates dance festival has announced reopening plans for this summer after receiving an nea grant to help support teaching and presenting artists uh bates plans to hold a three-week in-person professional training program intensive for 40 students supplemented by a week-long online intensive and they also plan to present concurrent outdoor performances, details of which are expected to be announced in May. We love to see it. Uh, but unfortunately, a little bit less uh, cheerful news. After four seasons, the hit NBC show World of Dance has been canceled. The dance competition show, which was executive produced by Jennifer Lopez, had three successful seasons but saw inconsistent numbers in its fourth season. The show gave dancers of all styles the chance to compete for a $1 million grand prize. London's Royal Opera House has announced its intention to reopen to live audiences beginning May 17th, the earliest date at which they are allowed to do so by the British government under current guidelines. The Royal Ballet's first program is planned to include Christopher Wielden's Within the Golden Hour and two new-to-the-company works by Crystal Pite. Digital programming will also continue in some capacity, and further details are to be announced in mid-April. Congratulations are in order. The Center for Ballet and the Arts at NYU and National Sawdust recently announced the Toulmin Creators. The artists are a group of 40 composers and choreographers slated to collaborate on new virtual work and participate in digital performances and programs that'll be free and open to the public. The list of dance artists is packed with talent and includes past dance magazine cover stars and former Dance Edit podcast guests. Yeah, some friends of the pod on there. <laughs> And the 15th annual dance parade, which will be taking place online on May 22nd, has announced its grand marshals. Pop star Lisa Lisa, Dance Theater of Harlem Artistic Director Virginia Johnson, and Chin Dance Center founders H.T. Chen and Dion Dong. You can find out more info about that at danceparade.org. So after all that mostly happy news, in our first segment, we're going to unfortunately, head in a less happy direction. And we're going to talk about some news that has not made a whole lot of headlines despite its increasing seriousness. It's kind of a quiet pandemic emergency. This past week, the New York Times ran a story about the performers who have lost not only their jobs, but also their health insurance during the pandemic. Many performers who usually get insurance through their unions in particular have lost coverage. And there's sort of a just an awful chain of events happening here. The pandemic stopped live performance, so employer contributions to health funds slowed or stopped. To make up for the difference, a lot of unions had to change their insurance plans, either requiring more weeks of work to meet the qualifying threshold for coverage or requiring higher employee contributions. Performers couldn't get jobs because everything was shut down, so they couldn't meet the higher thresholds or afford the higher rates, and they were kind of left out in the cold. I mean, really, that the performers at the end of this chain, especially those who dance, are people who rely on healthy bodies to do what they do. 
not to mention that we're in the middle of a massive public health crisis, which raises the stakes here considerably. This is just a mess. Yeah, I think a mess is a bit of an understatement. Uh, so something to clarify for those listening, because I know a lot of people aren't aware of how this works. Union-based benefits like health insurance is not the same deal as job-based health insurance when you're signing on to, say, like a full-time gig. Uh, so in order to maintain union membership, say with Actors' Equity or SAG-AFTRA, and earn credits towards things like health insurance, members have to hit a minimum income and or weeks of work per year. However, even in normal times, this can be tricky if you're a dancer working in a lot of different lanes. So shooting a commercial or a television spot might count towards your SAG-AFTRA membership, for example, but a concert dance performance wouldn't. So it's already quite tricky for dancers in particular to earn the necessary credits just in normal times. And now we are adding the massive complication that is there is almost no work because we're in a pandemic. Yeah, it's it's just absolutely horrible. One kind of small but chilling part of the story in The Times was simply Robbie Fairchild's quote, you never think it's going to be you. Um, but this mm -hmm. problem really speaks to the greater issue that is the flawed employer-based healthcare system in the U.S., which could fill a podcast episode in its own right. Yep. It could be an entire season of a podcast. It really would. And just briefly looking beyond the dance world, um, a survey by the Commonwealth Fund last year found that 41% of people who lost a job or whose spouse lost a job due to the pandemic relied on that employment for health insurance. And 20% of those people have not found alternative coverage. And even though that's not surprising, um, even those numbers are too high and the effects of that are dire and it's unnecessary. And in addition to simply the health risks of being unable to afford health care during a pandemic, it could also further shorten careers that have already been hindered by um, avoiding medical visits for treatment or detection of other health conditions or injuries. And it can also add an incentive to leave the field altogether for a potentially unrelated career, which could affect the richness of the dance landscape long term, kind of going back to problems that we've already talked about on the podcast. Losing talent and creative minds due to something as essential as healthcare is just shameful. Yeah, this whole situation is completely infuriating. There is a little bit of hopeful news here, courtesy the COVID relief bill that just passed, which does make it a little cheaper for people to use COBRA to keep buying health coverage that they've lost. And it also lowers the cost of buying insurance through government exchanges. I also want to say kudos to the Actors Fund because they have done a lot of work to help performing artists figure out what their insurance options are right now. They've actually been doing that work for a long time. But getting coverage is still going to be such a struggle for many performers. And this article really focused a lot on like unions and the way that losing access to those union benefits was affecting those dancers and performers. That isn't saying anything about the freelance artists who don't qualify for union membership to begin with. Like in a lot of ways, this is almost them being dropped into a similar situation <laughs> to what freelancers already deal with except exacerbated by the pandemic, like so many other things. Well, I am sad to say that our next segment is not going to make us any less angry. It uh, concerns another undercovered aspect of the pandemic's effects on the arts world. Liza Yentima and Hannah McCarthy from the Dance Data Project, more friends of the pod, they recently wrote an article about why the She Session, which is a maybe too cutesy, but we'll go with it term for the way COVID-related job losses have pushed more women than men from the workforce. That's hit the arts community especially hard. And there's been a lot of talk, bigger picture about the pandemic's disproportionate effect on women. There's been a lot of talk about how the arts and culture sector has been devastated by the pandemic. 
But we have to start talking about how those two problems are connected because women are overrepresented in our field. And if the arts are going to make a real comeback post-pandemic, securing and ensuring better support for women in the arts and particularly for women of color is going to be a really important part of the puzzle. And the blog post pointed out that women are overrepresented in the working class of the arts world uh, and gave the example that 65% of lower and mid-tier employees in the arts and culture sector in New York are women. And men tend to be in leadership positions and they tend to have better pay and better job security. And the burdens of home, elder, and childcare tend to disproportionately fall to women. And without support, women's careers are going to lag, especially given you know, the effects of the pandemic. And this has been reported for some time now. But of the net 140,000 jobs that were lost in December of 2020, all were held by women. And the jobs in the arts that were most vulnerable to furlough or layoff were primarily held by women of color, typically making minimum wage with no benefits or job security. And this is kind of a, a stats-heavy <laughs> stats intro, but the Institute for Women's Policy Research found that two in four mothers and three in four Black mothers are breadwinners for their families, which really underscores the importance of paid family leave. Well, and I think also, like, especially looking at the statistics in terms of men largely being in more leadership positions than women, it's not just that that doesn't make sense for the representation of our field. The fact that there is no comprehensive child care leave, like paid child care leave, that actually largely is going to be what is preventing women from being able to go into those positions. Right. Not because they can't do both, but because the people who are making the decisions about who to hire are likely to have these implicit biases that, oh, someone who is male and doesn't have a child that they're responsible for caring for is going to be able to devote more to the organization. Whereas mm -hmm. women might go off and have babies. It's like such, like, it's like we're 50 years ago in how this is being thought about. And like the solution is so obviously there needs to be comprehensive childcare made available just across the board to everyone, not just women, but men as well. Men need to be incentivized to stay home if they have a kid at home. Like there's just so many things here that even though this doesn't on the surface seem like a arts world story, this is affecting the way that our leadership is going forward and continues to affect it. Yeah. And when we're talking about government arts funding, a lot of activists tend to point to European models in which there's significant state investment in the arts. But most of those same governments also have great paid parental leave programs and subsidized childcare programs. And both of those things are critical to retaining women in the arts workforce. They work together. We can't think about them independently anymore. We never should have been thinking about them independently. Um, there's a really fantastic quote in here. In summary, we can imagine no better way to ensure the artistic and economic stagnation of the arts post-pandemic than the continuing systemic denial of creative and leadership opportunities to women, ongoing erasure of their past contributions to the field, a continuing gender pay gap, and overall refusal to acknowledge the overwhelming impact of unequal elder and child care burdens. Basically, in short, like, we need to fix this, y'all. Like, this needed to be fixed way back when. We're losing, like, 30 years of progress here. So the, this blog post ends with a list of action items, and a lot of them are sort of bigger picture things that institutions or governments will need to address. But one of them is something that you can do right now, which is to formally attach your name or your organization's name to the Family Act, which is legislation to create a permanent national paid 
family and medical leave program. So we'll include a link to that in the episode description. You can go do that right now. One small step of the many steps that need to be taken. Okay, so in our last segment, we're going to escape for a moment from the grim realities of the performing arts world and visit instead a magical TV kingdom ruled by Queen Megan Thee Stallion and King Harry Styles, by which I mean we're going to talk about the dancing that happened at the Grammy Awards on Sunday night. And I think by this point, it's kind of old news to say that Megan Thee Stallion won the whole night because she did. But we still need to talk about her incredible performance medley and then her performance with Cardi B. I'm sure Lydia is also itching to talk about BTS, whose performance was a big deal for a few different reasons. There was a lot of great dancing happening at the Grammys. There definitely was. Megan The Stallion's performance was incredible. I loved the um, kind of tap dance tribute to the Nicholas Brothers with the splits on the stairs. Incredible. When was the last time we saw tap at the Grammys, too? Yes. More tap, for one thing, please. I am tempted to just skip ahead to BTS since that's all. <laughs> we can we can circle back to Megan later, yeah. This year's ceremony also marked BTS's first time performing alone at the Grammys. They performed um, alongside Lil Nas X in last year's award show, and they received their first nomination this year for Best Pop Duo slash Group Performance, but they lost to Ariana Grande and Lady Gaga for Rain On Me. But they performed their smash hit Dynamite on top of a skyscraper in Seoul. They made excellent use of seemingly, like, less dance-friendly areas like stairwells, in my opinion. The choreography for Dynamite is familiar to many of us by now, and they delivered it with supreme panache. That's that's my BTS fangirling for this <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> Lydia's still slowly dragging me towards BTS fandom. I'm still telling you, <laughs> you'll fall t- down the rabbit hole. Join us. All right, well, before we go totally down that rabbit hole, let's go back to Megan Thee Stallion. And Cardi B. So Megan Thee Stallion started out with this sort of roaring 20s style fantasy, complete with that tap break, choreographed by Jaquel Knight. I think it's fascinating that the Nicholas Brothers, specifically that Stormy Weather performance, it's been inspiring all kinds of different artists this year. That's the same performance that also was behind Harry Styles' Treat People with Kindness video. It's having this like moment of renaissance. But to see it reenacted by two women, I thought Mm. was fascinating in this context. And then when Cardi B arrived, we went from the 20s into this like futuristic digital fantasia. That section was choreographed by Sean Bankhead. Megan came back to join her for WAP. They broke both the internet and possibly the giant bed that they were dancing on. It was just this like fabulous, exuberant celebration of female sexuality in a way that the Grammys does not usually make any room for. And this felt so liberated. And... I mean, honestly, all I like, I couldn't help but think watching that, like, if this had happened in like a normal Grammys year with like a massive crowd and audience, like they would have shorted out the audio. Like we would have lost audio because the audience would have been screaming so hard at what was happening on that stage. It wasn't. It was just phenomenal. Yeah. Also, Harry Styles's feather boa was magnificent. Oh gosh, that feather boa. I, few performers seem as utterly relaxed on a stage and just with the way their own bodies move as Harry Styles. Yeah, I, like it's just, he's not really a trained dancer, but I just love watching him move. He's just like so in his own body, and I love that about him. All right, let's let's end daydreaming about Harry Styles and his feather boa. We're gonna take a break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Emily Coates. Stay tuned.
Welcome back, dance friends. I'm here now with Emily Coates, Associate Professor and Director of Dance in the Theater and Performance Studies Program at Yale. Hi, Emily. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And we have a lot to talk about today. But before we get to the list of questions, would you mind telling our listeners a little about yourself and your relationship with dance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a dancer, a choreographer, and a writer, and started my career at New York City Ballet, where I danced for six years, and then veered off uh, into what I called at the time modern dance, and um, joined Barishnikov's company, White Oak Dance Project, worked with him, toured with him, danced with him for four years, and then worked with Twyla Tharp for two um, and did an odd maneuver where at 29, I came to Yale as a transfer student into their undergraduate program. And at the end of that time, finished my undergraduate degree here, I was hired by a professor named Joseph Roach to begin developing the dance curriculum at Yale. And I'm really happy to say um, I was hired in 2006. And this many years later, we have a really robust curriculum with a phenomenal lineup of faculty and offerings that I'm always constantly excited about. So uh, let's get right into it and discuss one of those offerings, the project that's the reason that we're talking at this particular moment. Um, and that's the new original series that you've created called Transpositions, Dance Poems for an Online World. So in broad outline, it is 16 digital dance works by 16 choreographers. But can you talk in more specific terms about what Transpositions is and how it came to be? Yeah, um, absolutely. So it, it evolved in my mind last spring when everything shut down in March um, and April. And we looked ahead and we could pretty much predict that it was likely the fall at least would be an all online teaching year. Um, and simultaneously, we could look at the performing arts economy, which already last spring was um, severely affected by the closing of theaters, studios, rehearsal spaces, classes, etc. And I, I looked at both those situations and um, wanted, first of all, to marshal as many of the resources at Yale that I could towards supporting the dance community and the dance world that I so love, um, towards supporting the artists I love most and care about, um, and offer them a chance to keep working, to keep creating, to be paid for that work. I also um, looked at the situation for our students and thinking about their isolation and um, the strangeness of this time, you know, in what ways could this project, this developing project help bring them together, help feel, help make the, them feel cared for and creative and inspired in this remote world. And then the sort of middle ground was in many conversations, and I know you've had them too, about what is dance in this online existence. Just wanting to ask and think about the question of embodied transmission across the digital ether. What gets through? 
what doesn't. We know there's a lot that doesn't get through, but we also know that there's a lot that energetically, physically, kinesthetically does. And, and so the project transpositions as a whole, that in a way is the central inquiry, embodied transmission in this digital world and this beautiful passage that it captures from the craft and knowledge of seasoned established choreographers and dance artists to emerging artists, um, students who are dancers, just encountering these new ideas in this um, particularly unusual and really challenging year. I love the phrase dance palm because it has such a ruminative quality to it that I think reflects kind of the, the time that we're in. But how, how did you arrive at that name? The name, um, well, I will be very honest and say it first arose because I thought it sounded cool. Um, <laughs> but then the more I thought about it and the more that we all, my creative producing team, um, my partners at the Yale Schwartzman Center, um, which is a new center for student life in the arts at Yale, and the choreographers that we were engaging and the dancers, the more we were all in, in it and starting to do the work and think about it, it took on a kind of double resonance. On the one hand, it's exploring the poetics of Zoom. We isolated the creative process to Zoom um, and wanting to really think about what, how, to, how to elevate this space um, for ourselves and our community. Um, and then secondly, to think about dance poems, to think about an, an, the essence of dance and the extraction of that essence um, into these, these works of video art that we are creating. And I will say there's so many collaborators in this project by design, it's to knit together communities. Um, but a real linchpin is our video artist, Kyla Arsajaja, who graduated last spring from the Yale School of Art. And, and really with um, all these different choreographers, with all these different dancers, with all these different visions and ideas and questions and inquiries happening in each of the poems, it's Kyla's vision that's really actually making them into um, digital dance poems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this idea of collective authorship, this emphasis on the collaborative aspects of dance creation feels really poignant at this moment when we can't gather, physically gather. What do you think the pandemic has taught us about the way that dance artists, that artists in and around the dance field collaborate and the importance of the collective in dance? Um, another point of inspiration last spring when I was conceptualizing this project uh, was an article that the New Yorker put out and it was you know 24 hours in the city under COVID and they had a lineup of stellar writers, each writing a dispatch from a different moment in the day. And when you read through it, 
you only learned who those writers were at the very end. So the effect was this beautiful documentation of the life of the city in this extraordinary crisis. And then at the end, you realized, oh, aha, you know, the, the, the best writers in their <laughs> lineup contributed. That's why it was so good. Um, but, but that idea of a kind of collectively designed mosaic or uh, anthology, a portrait or documentation of this time was really inspiring to me. And I also felt, and certainly last spring with the killing of George Floyd, with the uh, rise of ever greater social protest, the imperatives of Black Lives Matter, this sense of collective action being crucial. And how could the arts, how could dance, how could we in our project designed at Yale participate in thinking at the very deep formal compositional levels about collective action? And, and thus, you know, here we are with a project that involves 16 choreographers, 16 poems, 66 dancers, nine sound designers, four producers, and a video artist <laughs> weighing in. Can you talk a little about how you assembled this group of collaborators? Because they're such, it's such a remarkable list. Well, it was fun. It was really fun. Um, I started with the dance faculty at Yale, who under normal conditions have really robust professional lives outside of the teaching that they do for us here. And under the abnormal conditions of last spring had lost that work. Um, and so they were one of my first points of concern um, and, and first points of celebration and wanting to really elevate them. Um, and that includes Renee Robinson, Iren Holtman, um, Lucina Koulibaly, Ronan MacArthur, um, and then our more left field dance critic, Brian Siebert, uh, created a poem. Um, and then I expanded out into affiliates at Yale where you find across the university um, different people doing really interesting work in dance. And so that brought in Amy Meredith Cox, who's an anthropologist, um, superstar who had danced with Ailey too. And that brought in Aki Sazamoto, who is in the sculpture faculty at the Yale School of Art and um, Cecile Bushidi, who is a phenomenal dance historian who used to dance with Wayne McGregor, <laughs> who was here in a postdoc, and Christopher Rasheen McMillan, a visiting faculty at the Institute of Sacred Music. So there was a, the desire to kind of knit together those. And then it moved outward into the New Haven community. And happily, um, Hanan Hameen, who's a choreographer affiliated with a local school called the Neighborhood Music School participated, um, a terrific local company based in New Haven called the Elm City Dance Collective with Lindsay Bauer and Kelly Lynch. Um, and then worked even further outward from there to artists um, like 
Jenna Regal and Shayla V. Jenkins from the Bill T. Jones Company. And, and then even further outward from there, and these two artists were brought in by the Yale Schwartzman Center because they have relationships with them. Um, Dormisha, the brilliant tap dancer, and then reaching quite far away, the farthest flung to Johannesburg and Gregory Macoma. So the desire was to knit together communities, both locally and nationally and internationally. And then how did you put dancers and choreographers together? That's a great question. I started um, the other more the kind of local and internal inclusivity is that I, I reached out to every single student-led dance group on campus at Yale and invited their participation. And 12 groups, students from 12 of the groups participated. And I, you know, began initially with a kind of more obvious connections. Um, aha, you know, with Gregory Macoma, for instance, I connected um, him to the Contemporary African Dance Group on campus. And that was an obvious, beautiful fit in an extension of the work that the group on campus, Zana, um, does. And then I started to think um, in different ways as I went along with the pairings. And for instance, the Yale um, Undergraduate Ballet Company, it seemed to me, wouldn't it be quite exciting to work with former Bill T. Jones dancers and what kind of stretch um, and new realms could, could they um, uncover in conversation with Jenna and Shayla. Um, so sometimes it's a really direct fit between the aesthetics of the group and the choreographer's aesthetics, but more often than not, I actually was thinking pedagogically, but also really artistically about how can, how can these pairings kind of spark, how can something be sparked in the pairings where it's not maybe so comfortable for the better? Mm -hmm. In the description of this project, the, the mission is described as bridging pandemic-created gaps. And you've, you've touched already on some of the gaps that it's bridging, this need for community, this need for collective, collaborative creation. What other gaps is it filling? Some, again, have a lot to do with our, our community locally. Um, you know, inside of Yale, the School of Drama, is its own world. The undergraduate program in Yale College is its own world and never the twain shall meet. Um, it feels, I'm also appointed at the School of Drama and there are those of us on faculty who go between and there are certainly passages of different kinds among the students, but that connection and collaboration felt important. So the school, the sound design department um, Matthew Sutter, a professor in sound design, happily embraced the project. And, you know, there are nine sound designers from the School of Drama who are participating. So that's a really happy connection. Um, the, the gap between the Yale and New Haven communities, we are constantly um, trying to address that it, that it not feel like this yawning gap 
And, and I'm happy to say both with the choreographers who are based in New Haven being involved and um, dancers from a dance company at the Neighborhood Music School also participated um, there in a, the poem by Renee Robinson. And then of course, to, to really take advantage of what the remote world enables, which is piping in Dormisha from New York. <laughs> piping in, you know, our, our faculty member, Lucina Kulabali, who, when it was being made, was home in Burkina Faso in Ouagadougou. And of course, then Gregory Makoma in South Africa. So kind of thinking about how those, those time zones and geographies can be collapsed as well and layered into this project. Yeah, this idea that in this time when we are physically more distant than ever before, there's a, a greater sense of community in these digital projects. That's so fascinating. I want to zoom out now and talk a little more generally about how the academic dance world has weathered the pandemic because we're approaching the strange one-year anniversary of COVID shutdowns. Where have you seen your field rise to meet the pandemic's challenges and where have you seen it fall short? You know, that's it's such a great question. And in my mind, I in no ways has it fallen short. <laughs> We're dancers, you know, we don't feel sorry for ourselves for long before we're resourcefully reinventing our art form. And the world of um, academia and dance as it lives in academia is affected in precisely the same ways that um, New York City Ballet is affected or any dance company or any uh, venue for dance you know, which is, again, the idea of transpositions. We have all transposed, uh, force, forcibly transposed ourselves into this existence. And whatever dabbling there was with dance, dance and digital life and film that was occurring is full-on, full-force um, research happening worldwide in this digital ether. So I, again, you know, the challenges of dance in this moment in time, there are things we can't have. We, um, unless you're in a happy bubble res residency somewhere, or, you know, a professional dance company who's conceptualized how to return in a kind of staggered rehearsal and class structure safely, um, right now, for us, we're still all remote. Um, the majority of teaching is being done remotely. Certainly all of the dance courses are being done remotely this semester. And invention is occurring. Daniel Ulbricht is teaching a course called Ballet Now. And he is both drilling down deep into the plie because it's stationary and you know they don't need a lot of space. Um, we can't teach space in terms of eating up space so well, but we certainly can teach how to hold space and, and we can teach things that happen in one space <laughs> really well. And to me, there's then this forced pressure because there are some things we can't have, um, like the energetic exchange that occurs in a studio live. We then work really hard at cultivating energetic connection over 
screens. And in some of the transposition poems, there are just these beautiful connections that you can tell were accomplished live in the rehearsal development experimentation process. Um, where it feels like, oh, that's like, you know, it's like we've grown a new limb. We're kind of growing like new antennae um, in, in this forced medium we're operating in that when we move back into being able to dance together in real time in big spaces, we will have, I hope, this ever heightened, even more tuned sensibility of connection with others because we're fighting for it through the screen. <laughs> yeah, I know. I It's going to be, I mean, just wonderful to see dancers on stage again, period, when this is all over, but also wonderful to see how dance artists have changed over the course of the pandemic out of, out of their active pursuit of that kind of energetic connection, out of their drilling down into the less, you know, expansive aspects of dance. We're so often encouraged to focus on the expansive. Okay. I have another big picture question because following the killing of George Floyd and this summer's social justice protests, there has also been a renewed focus on equity and inclusion in school dance departments. I mean, everywhere across the dance world, but in school dance departments too. How has Yale approached that work? I'm really happy to say um, we have always had a diverse dance faculty. So I was the first one hired full-time in 2006. And the second person um, was Sina Kulabali, who is a phenomenal West African dancer uh, and contemporary dancer. And Lasso has been teaching for us for 15 years. So whatever aesthetic background I bring between neoclassical ballet and postmodern dance, Lasso's aesthetic uh, and Africanist um, thought has been very much part of the development of the dance program at Yale. And then we've had also a really strong African-American presence within the program, African-American concert dance with Renee Robinson from a former principal dancer with Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. And the artists that we work with um, have always represented a really wide range of dance forms and aesthetics. And I will say that transpositions, the majority of choreographers are artists of color. The white artists are in the minority in the project. And that's also very much by design to celebrate in this moment, the African-American, Africanist, global, Africanist diaspora that is so deeply um, feeding and, you know, American dance is indebted, indebted to that aesthetic. So finally, it's been a really weird, disorienting, hard year. But as of this moment, and you've touched on some of these things already, but what are the things that make you hopeful about the future of dance education specifically, and then the future of the dance field more broadly too? I mean, I can't wait for theaters to reopen. Um, I can't wait for that. What it was in the New York Times, 60 per, 66% of performing artists are unemployed right now. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, my hope is that these predictions of an arts boom that will follow this time are true. And that with reopening of theaters, the full economy um, life, you know, that we certainly will be changed. It's not going to be what it was. And in many ways that'll be for the better, um, but that, that dance be leading the way in the celebration, the joy, the wisdom, the knowledge. I mean, certainly it, it felt like in this, the abrupt, what felt like an abrupt shift to the remote world that occurred last March that, you know, suddenly everyone had to become aware of the value of liveness <laughs> and embodiment and embodied transmission because they had lost it. You know, those, my colleagues who teach sit down seminars suddenly became acutely aware of what was lost from that live interaction and energetic exchange. And, you know, dance, that's what we know and that's what we're good at. And, I, and to me, the, the dance world um, upon reopening may funds flood into dance and that wisdom that we possess in our world of dance, you know, lead, lead the celebration, the joy, the learning that's to come from the moment we actually can get back together again. Thank you so much for talking about the program, for sharing your bigger picture insights. Um, before we say goodbye, can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about transpositions? Yes, uh, I don't have the URL exactly in my head, but the two sites are the Yale Dance Lab website and the Yale Schwartzman Center website. And I will say that the poems are getting rolled out one or two a week until the middle of May. And then we're going to have a, a massive streamed communal celebration of the entire anthology. And that again, information will be available both on the Yale Dance Lab's website and the Yale Schwartzman Center's website. And we'll include links to the Dance Labs and the Schwartzman Center websites in our episode description to make it easier for people to find too. Great. <laughs> Thanks so much again, Emily. Thank you, Margaret. It's so great to talk with you. Thanks again to Emily. At this point now, six of the 16 transpositions dance poems are out, and they all offer like wildly different approaches to the given task. It's fascinating to see. As Emily mentioned, you can find them on the Yale Schwartzman Center and the Yale Dance Lab websites, which we've linked in the show notes. You can also see excerpts on the Schwartzman Center's social pages. We've linked to those too. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Dance Edit.